Okay, well, uh, good evening. Welcome everybody to this event. I am Simona Botti and I'm an associate professor of marketing at London Business School. And I'm here to chair this, uh, this event in which we will hear from Amita Chakravarti um, talk a bit about his book. And the title of the book is Why People Don't Buy the Go and Stop Signals. So Amitav um, Chakravarti is a professor here at London School of Economics uh, within the management department. He got his BA from the University of Bombay in Economics and also he got his MBA from the Indian Institute of Foreign Trade and his PhD from the University of Florida. I joined LSE from uh, the Stern School of Business in New York City. Uh, Amitav published extensively in uh, consumer research uh, and in top psychology and consumer research and marketing journals, and his research has been very influential. In fact, he got several awards, uh, among which the Google WPP Marketing Research Award in 2008 and the Marketing Science Institute Young Scholar Award in 2007. And on top of everything, don't ask me how, he found the time to write uh, his most recent book, which is uh, pretty amazing together with uh, Manoj Thomas, who is at Cornell University. And I've known Amida for 15 years, more, less, let's say less, otherwise we, we, you know, we look too old. old. <laughs> for 15 years, and Manoj was my colleague at, um, at Cornell for a few years. So I'm particularly happy to be here tonight to celebrate this wonderful accomplishment. Writing a book, I think it's, uh, it's an amazing um, uh, effort and, and, and an amazing accomplishment. So this book, again, the title, as I said, is Why People Don't Buy the Go and Stop Signals, um, look at the reasons why people do not buy and proposes uh, ways and, and interventions to change this behavior. So the book is based on solid, scientific, very well-grounded uh, consumer behavior research and uses the findings from this research to um, uh, to understand what drives uh, what drives consumers, uh, and uh, the, the the most interesting part for me of, of the book is uh, the application of these findings of the research findings to um, cases, interesting cases, both in the consumption domain and in the public policy domain. Um, and the other interesting part of the book, again, in my opinion, I've read almost all of it, not all of it, uh, is the, the fact that the book proposes a framework called the Go and Stop Signals. And this framework is very important for, for managers because it gives managers a way to structure their uh, approach to marketing strategies in order to try to increase the likelihood of having uh, hits and decrease the likelihood of having misses. So um, I, I found it like a really interesting read, and uh, and I'm you know very happy to know more from uh, from Amitav. So before I leave the floor to Amitav, just a couple of logistic um, uh, uh, information here for the Twitter's users in the audience. The hashtag for today's event is there. Uh, please put your phones on silent, though, so that you, you're not going to disrupt the, this event. Also, the event is being recorded, and hopefully it's going to be made available, available as a podcast, so you can download it, um, hopefully, um, uh, in the future. And uh, after Amitav lecture, that is going to take about 40, 45 minutes, I will open the floor to any questions that you may have for about another 30 minutes. And uh, if you wish uh, to buy the book, there are going to be copies available outside uh, this room.
So I guess this is all from me, even too much. So please uh, join me in welcoming Professor Amitav Chakravarti to LSE uh, to deliver his lecture entitled Why People Don't Buy the Go and Stop Signals. Okay, um, thanks, Simona, for the wonderful and uh, generous uh, introduction. Uh, it's also Simona's very busy teaching time, so thanks all the m more for being here. Um, and thanks to all of you for being here. Um, I realize it's probably the end of a pretty long and, I guess, busy working day. And it's also a wonderful, beautiful summer day outside, so thanks for imprisoning yourself in this wonderful windowless uh, basement room uh, to listen to what I have to say. Um, well, without uh, much further ado, so the work that I'm going to talk about today uh, began with Manoj Thomas, uh, who is my collaborator from Cornell. And the genesis of this book happened on one fine day in a very, very pretty and beautiful town in upstate New York called Ithaca. Uh, I was there working with uh, Manoj on some research-related projects. and. Ithaca, as those of you might know about Ithaca, Ithaca, as most undergraduate t-shirts will proclaim to you, Ithaca is gorgeous. However, it is a small town. There's not much to do. So when we took a break from our research, we found ourselves at a location which happens to be where I guess most Ithacans spend 90% of their leisure time. And that location is called Wegmans. Um, you may not know what Wegmans is, but Wegmans is the most popular grocery store in the town of Ithaca. Uh, it's a wonderful grocery store, and we found ourselves there, and Manoj uh, is, uh, has a wonderful family of four, so he had actual shopping to do, and he was wandering around the aisles. Um, I don't live in Ithaca, so I was sort of lost wandering around the aisles, and I found myself transfixed in one of these aisles. And the reason why I was rooted to the spot was this object of desire, Keebler's Deluxe Chocolate Chip Cookies. And it, it may not appeal to all of you, but for those of you who know it, this is an absolutely wonderful, one of the best chocolate chip cookies you could ever have, uh, unless you're actually baking it at home. Uh, it's really wonderful to collaborate with Hershey's to have actually the best possible chocolate chip cookies out there. Uh, they even have descriptions, which I don't have, uh, which talked about how you could put it in the microwave and it'll be delicious because the chocolate chips will melt. And, and for those of you uh, in the audience who know me a little bit, uh, I am a chocolate chip, cakes, and desserts kind of a guy. You will find me eating salads, but chances are that you'll also find a frown on my face. Um, so this is, or these kinds of extremely tasteful, um, really tasty, uh, sinful and delightful things are what, what I gravitate towards. So I was transfixed, but at the same time, of course, there was a little bit of a dilemma. Should I really buy this? It's really not good for me in the long term. It's not good for my waistline, and God knows what damage it's doing to my arteries in the long run. So I was kind of torn. Uh, they even threw in a sale where you could take two of these packets for $5, and that, of course, makes it even all the more tasty for some of us. Um, but I, I kind of debated for a few seconds, resisted it, and, and finally moved on. So I patted myself on the back for exercising my virtuous self. I said, I'm not going to have this. I walked away. And I must have walked not more than 20 paces further down the aisle when I found this little object greeting me. 
Uh, 100 calories brand called Right Bites. It actually also assures you that it's made by Keeblers, the very same company that made these uh, delicious things. And after I laid my sight on this 100 calorie pack, I have no clue what happened in the next 20 seconds. Um, I have no clue about my information processing strategy. I have no clue about the transaction at the till. But the next thing I know was that I was in the car with Manoj. Uh, with two of these packs. These were also being sold for two packs, $5 each, and I found myself you know, sitting in the car with Manoj hugging two of these packets. Uh, not only that, I was boasting to him, saying that, look, uh, I actually did pretty good, I resisted temptation, and I had only 100 calories of these, and, and uh, I, I think I should pat myself on the back. Uh, for those of us who know Manoj a little bit, uh, he's... He's, a, he's a, first of all, a pricing researcher, a very incisive person. At the same time, he's extremely polite. Uh, he didn't say anything. He just smiled at me with his slightly wry grin and sort of said, okay, that's fine. And he waited until we went home. And what he did was essentially put the two products side by side on a computer screen and then asked me to take a look at what I did. Now, while it is true that I just got the 100 calorie pack and did damage control in terms of not going above 100 calories. Um, and I did not pay more than $5 either. I got two packets of this for $5. But essentially what he nudged me to do was to take a look at the per unit price. As you can see from the per unit price, I paid a 300% premium for outsourcing my portion control uh, exercise. <laughs> Um, and, he, and he continued to smile. So this 100-calorie paradox, if you will, was what set us thinking. Well, what, what's going on over here? And of course, when I felt, I felt really bad about it, uh, I felt obviously duped. The first thing you do is essentially go online and start looking, well, am I, pardon the expression, am I the only sucker around, or is there a lot of other people like me? And I googled the 100-calorie paradox. And this was really in the early days of the 100-calorie paradox phenomena, when it was still not as big a success as it is today. And what I found is a little bit of a mixed reaction. So there were lots of quotes like this, which is essentially what managers would say about these 100-calorie packs. Managers would essentially say that these 100-calorie packs will not succeed. Because cookies and other snacks are essentially discretionary items. Why should anyone pay a premium for them? These are essentially overpriced. Not only are they overpriced, they're also underfilled. No one's going to buy them. But in reality, if you look at the 100-calorie paradox um, phenomena, over time, what essentially happened was that it was a very, very big hit. And this is research done by the Center for um, Science and the Public Interest. Uh, and this is a partial list of a table of various companies that has launched these 100-calorie uh, packs. And they've been extremely successful. Uh, they've been flying off the shelves um, around, uh, I think, 200 million in sales in less than two to three years' time. Uh, not only that, each one of them commands a premium, anything ranging from 150% to up to 300%, like you saw in the example before. So not only are they successful in terms of their popularity, they're also commanding a pretty huge premium. Uh, and they come from a diverse range of areas. So there are Cookies, as you saw, there are these crackers, pretzels, ice creams, um, just about any kind of discretionary snack that you can imagine has been able to jump into this uh, bandwagon of the 100-calorie packs phenomena. 
and sort of ride the success. However, um, what ended up happening after a while was that many other companies also tried their hand at this 100 calories pack phenomena. And one of the companies that tried it was Ocean Spray with this Crazins brand of snacks that they have. And they launched a 100 calorie pack uh, version of it, which was a pretty big flop. In fact, so much so that they had to actually withdraw it from the market. And there were many other companies which also sort of tried to jump into the same bandwagon, and, and they failed pretty abysmally. Um, the reason why I wanted to talk to you about this 100-calorie paradox, or, or this incident in particular, besides, of course, publicly advertising my gluttony, uh, is the fact that um, two things come out of, of, you know, since the day that the 100-calorie pack incident happened to us in, in Ithaca. One is that we notice the same kind of pattern of hits and misses in a whole host of consumer categories. So there would be essentially an initial innovation, like a 100-calorie pack. There would be people who would say it is surely bound to fail. Then it would become a big success. People would jump on the bandwagon, and then until uh, there was a big flop. So there was this pattern of hits and misses recurring in all sorts of industries, um, not just snacks and, and packaged goods industries, but also services. Uh, the book also deals with an entire chapter on public policy interventions, uh, which become hits until they actually become a flop. So there's this pattern of hits and misses, which I wanted to reference to by using this uh, particular example. Uh, what I also wanted to do is use this example to introduce uh, what I think is the main protagonist of our book, which is essentially the go and stop signal framework. Uh, the go and stop signal framework is not something we came up with. It merely, uh, we, we are simply standing on the shoulders of giants. It, there's a rich history of literature on uh, the go and stop signal framework, which we are borrowing to explain a whole host of uh, different public policy and consumer behavior scenarios. Um, so what I'd like to do in, in, in the next few slides is introduce the go and stop signal framework to you, um, walk through a few examples which helps highlight the three different kinds of mistakes that managers, seems to be, managers seem to be doing in, in generating these kinds of hits and misses or sort of this mixed bag of results. Uh, and, and then at the very end sort of suggest what could we do to change the scenario a little bit. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I think for a whole host of categories, including this 100-calorie pack example, I think it's very useful to think of the category, whether it's uh, you know, eating cookies or driving a car or whether it is something in the public policy domain like donating blood or uh, making sure that you pick up your kids on time from uh, a daycare center. It's useful to think of what are the approach and avoidance cues that your product or your action or your action of concern is emanating. For the cookies, for example, there are a whole host of go signals associated with the cookie. The cookie is delicious. It can actually be microwaved to make it even better. There's the aroma. There's all sorts of essentially momentary pleasures that, that a cookie will invoke in the mind. However, the cookie also has a lot of stop signals. Sometimes the cookies can be expensive, but not in my case because these were on sale. However, there, there are other stop signals. Uh, in, in my case, it was essentially feelings of guilt, um, wondering what will happen to me in the long term in terms of health consequences, 
or even short term in terms of uh, waistline consequences and, and other such stop signals. Um, it is useful to think of it in terms of any action in terms of these go and stop signals because if you look at these successes or failures, many of them can be explained by whether or not the managers or the public policy analysts behind the intervention was able to amplify the go signal successfully or were they able to dampen the stop signal successfully. And in the cookies category, the 100 calorie pack we think was a big success precisely because they realized that the stop signals for the 100 calorie for the cookies category comprises a lot of intangibles like feelings of guilt and worry about health related consequences etc um, so what they were able to do was essentially create uh, innovation a 100 calorie pack format that allowed you to consume the cookies without any feelings of guilt so in other words they snipped away a major stop signal which was essentially the feelings of guilt uh, more formally, what we would like to say is that a go signal, and this is unlike the typical rational economic utility model, a go signal comprises a thought or a feeling, uh, and the role of emotions is quite big over here, uh, or it could even be a subconscious response that a consumer is unable to articulate. That energizes you to go towards the product. It could be this gleaming iPhone that you're just naturally gravitating towards. But anything that, make, that energizes you to move towards the product and buy it is essentially a go signal. And anything that stops you, so any thought, feeling, or subconscious response that makes you somehow stop on your tracks in, in going towards the product or service in question is essentially a stop signal. Uh, what we also wanted to point out is that some of the obvious go and stop signals are, for example, the product features that are associated with the product. So what the iPhone can do, the fact that you can use your fingers without having to use tactile buttons, etc., are all go signals. But um, note, in terms of examples, we also have things which are not that concrete and are relatively more abstract. So for example, when we buy products, often we also buy products because we want to signal to the rest of the world what kind of a person we are. And the same thing with the stop signal. What might be stopping us from buying the cookies is, is, are, are not just things related to price, for example, but it might be concerns about whether you're signaling to the rest of the world how much you care about your health, whether you're a glutton or not, and things like that. Or even whether or not you signal to yourself about what kind of a person you are. So there are the obvious product-related attributes that become go-and-stop signals, but there are also some not-so-obvious things which become go-and-stop signals, and hopefully I'll be able to clarify it a little bit more through some examples. Uh, so more formally, I think this is the representation. Uh, the go signal and the stop signals are essentially two approach and avoidance tendencies that we tend to have towards any product, service, or an action, be it donating our blood or be it volunteering time um, for a not-for-profit. Usually they are independently represented in the brains. There's a lot of debate about it, but I, Manoj is doing some work on trying to track the go and stop signals based on skin conductance measures, and he seems to um, sort of um, locate these signals independently. fMRI research also seems to point in the same direction. Um, 
But generally speaking, this is the go signal, this is the stop signal. Whether or not someone buys the product will depend on the relative strength of these two signals. And clearly, um, as a marketer and a public policy analyst, the aim is to create things that uh, amplify the go signal and create interventions that dampen the stop signal. Um, in the next few slides, what I wanted to do is talk about how, if you ignore this framework, you run the risk of these hit or miss kind of patterns that we talked about a little while ago. Um, I'm going to share a few examples, and these examples are recent things that have happened in the press, uh, and the press has covered it extensively. Um, if we had used the go and stop signals, I think some of these mistakes could have been avoided. Um, and in looking at the kind of errors that managers seem to make, there are essentially three kinds of errors that we seem to come up with. Uh, I'll talk about the examples, and then I think these three errors will be easier to relate to. Uh, but essentially, there are these three kinds of errors. There are managers who we call the Vulcan managers, uh, whose worldview of how consumers think, and, and if you didn't get the Star Trek reference, that essentially claims that um, Vulcans are essentially emotionless. They're essentially an economist's dream. So Vulcans have no emotions. They are true utility and disutility processors in order to come up with the value of an option. So if your worldview is this, this is how consumers think, that often leads to some mistakes. Then there's the hedgehogian manager, which I'll explain in just a little bit uh, where the terminology comes from, but this code captures the sense. So they try and use things that have worked before. There's, of course, nothing wrong in using previously successful tactics, but there are some problems with that, and we talk about that. And then uh, we got a very clever illustrator. You could probably see who the person we are talking, referring to over here is the anti-research manager folks who say, we don't need research. We can do everything by uh, the seat of our pants. Uh, let me actually go through a few examples that will help illustrate some of these mistakes and hopefully avoid them. The first one that I want to talk about is the JCPenney case, which I'm sure you've heard of quite a bit in the press. So prior to 2011, uh, and this is a picture of uh, Ron Johnson, who took over right after 2011 at JCPenney. And before he entered JCPenney, obviously JCPenney was, uh, was in big trouble. Uh, comparable stores in that area, sort of discount stores like Macy's, were doing exceedingly well. And the primary market was doing quite well. And despite that, uh, JCPenney was in trouble. So Johnson was brought in. And Johnson has had a lot of past success. Uh, for example, in Apple, he was credited with designing the Apple stores, you know, sort of the gleaming uh, urban meccas that we all uh, flock to. Um, he was the person credited behind the Genius Bar as well. And apparently, uh, Steve Jobs was against that idea in the beginning. Um, so you know, getting your idea to work when Steve Jobs is against it is not that easy. If you've read Steve Jobs' biography, you will, you will know that it's not very easy to disagree with him. Um, he was prior to that at Target, and he was responsible for sort of taking the Target brand name upstream. It's, um, I won't go into the details, but he is essentially the person who's responsible for making Target what they now refer to as Target. Um, a little bit of a chic in that cheap, if you will. Uh, and, and behind the scenes, he's also worked with his alma mater, uh, Stanford University's hospitals, where he's redesigned how people process the 
um, the sort of the patient management process, and he was extremely successful in sort of redesigning Stanford Hospital as well. And in the center of all of these successes, as you can see, was a basic idea to improve the customer experience. And after he joined JCPenney, that's what he did. He went and visited a bunch of JCPenney stores, and he essentially felt that the customer experience at the JCPenney store is awful. You walk in, it's a cluttered store, people are busy, things are being thrown around, there are a million discounts, and according to him, it's, it's a total mess. So what he wanted to do was essentially introduce what he called a better customer experience. And based on his visits to Italy and a couple of other places, he wanted to introduce uh, what he called uh, a market square experience, which I'll talk about in just a little bit. Um, but the basic idea was that he wanted to create a customer experience that customers enjoyed. And when he was questioned about this strategy, this was the quote that he, or reasoning that he offered. He said, how do you explain the fact that people flock to Apple stores to buy Apple products at full price? When Walmart, Best Buy, and Target carry most of them often discounted in various ways, and Amazon carries them all, doesn't have sales tax. And this line is essentially what captures his uh, spirit of his argument. He talked about how people come to the Apple store for the experience, and they're willing to pay a premium for it. So his argument was pretty simple. If you build a store atmosphere, they will come. Um, so what he wanted to do was essentially um, create a market square concept based on his experiences in various parts of Europe, and especially in Italy, where the center of the store would be a place where you lounge around. So essentially it would be a cafe. So you could serve coffee, drinks, water, etc. And all the merchandising and the wares would be up against the walls and around the periphery of the store. So the idea was that that whole messy transactional atmosphere would be diminished by creating this very quaint market square-like atmosphere. The other thing he wanted to do, and this is something he noticed, was that there seemed to be simply a crazy amount of discounts, coupons, and special deals going on at any point of time. Uh, in fact, he, he pointed to how there were 590 different discount schemes that were all over the place, and given that there are only 365 days in a year, you can imagine that this is not a very clear picture in terms of, uh, actually, sort of truth in terms of price tag. So he wanted to do away with this. And especially if you're promising, if your brand promises about this wonderful market square-like atmosphere, you cannot have this crazy flea market-like uh, atmosphere over there. Uh, you want it to be consistent, so he wanted to do away with it. Um, here are a couple of quotes that capture uh, what he really wanted to talk about. Essentially, the sales, the sales did not respond to these 590 discounts, so he essentially wanted to say, look, that just means that the customers are ignoring us or the sales 99% uh, uh, of the time. And this is sort of what captures his, his main, the rationale behind his strategy. So he said, I would like to build brand trust, and it starts with the price tag. I want truth in the price tag. People were just tired of coupons. And he launched what is known as the fair and square pricing strategy. And I'll show you just a couple of clips uh, and the rationale behind that. Uh, most of us, I think, will identify with what he was trying to do. Essentially, if you think about it in terms of the go signal, he tried, was trying to create a nice atmosphere. And he felt that this flea market-like atmosphere, there were these 590 different promotion schemes where you really didn't know what the true price of a product is, was getting in the way. So let's take that away from, um, from, uh, from this uh, confusing atmosphere. Um, so let me switch to this clip. Um, 
I think these are three short adverts that they launched uh, around that time. Take a look, and then we'll switch back. So you get the basic idea behind uh, this strategy. And, and just to remind you, this is not that uh, Ron Johnson decided to take away the discounts. Uh, he's still when our next guest found out that her friend with high-functioning autism didn't have a date to prom, she enlisted the help of his favorite NFL football. Now, while I know you much rather watch that other clip, <laughs> let me switch back to away from Ellen DeGeneres for a moment. Um, the one thing that I do want to remind you is that it's not that Ron Johnson took discounts away. The only thing he did was simplify the discounts. Instead of having these you know, 600 odd discount schemes varying through 365 days, he just simplified it. Uh, and as many of you know, here's what happened. Three months in, there was a 19% drop in sales. Six months in, there was a 23% drop in sales. He was asked, are you sure you're doing the right thing? And he said, yes, too often good strategies fail because people back out too soon. And he soldiered on. 12 months, 25% drop in sales. 14 months, he was fired. Now, less, you take it otherwise. This is not about any particular CEO bashing. Or, I mean, I would happily change places any day uh, with Ron Johnson. And he's done a lot of good work, as I pointed out, at Apple, Target, and at the Stanford Hospital. The question is, what exactly did he do wrong? And I think this example in particular, and most of the examples that I'm going to talk over crosses over in terms of the different kinds of mistakes, but it highlights what we refer to as the hedgehogian manager or, or the manager who continues to use a strategy before, because it has worked before. Um, the term hedgehogs and foxes comes from uh, Isaiah Berlin's book, which was then popularized by Phil Tetlock, who looked at expert political judgment, and he basically saw that there were two kinds of people out there, experts who are foxes, and then the experts who are supposed to be hedgehogs. The hedgehog, apparently, that's the, that, that's people who know hedgehogs and foxes tell me that that's the case. I have never personally seen them or interviewed them, but apparently the hedgehog knows one big thing. So whenever something happens, any adversities out there, they roll over and show their quills. The fox apparently is much more crafty, knows many small little little things and many different tricks, which is the reason why there might still be fox hunting out there. Uh, it's a little bit more tricky. But the basic idea is that what Phil Tetlock found is that while the press pays a lot of attention to the hedgehogs, because the hedgehogs have this one big powerful idea which seems to solve the entire world, if you actually track success rates, it turns out that uh, the Foxian experts tend to outperform the Hedgehogian expert. So hedgehogs have this one big idea which seem to work everywhere. And the problem is, well, what is the problem with following a Hedgehogian strategy? Clearly with Johnson, the idea of improving store atmosphere is something that has worked beautifully everywhere else. He did it wonderfully at Apple, he did it at Target, he also did it at a hospital. So what's the problem with following the hedgehogian strategy, where you pursue one big strategy in a, in, in a fairly uh, simple manner? There are actually two errors which we seem to come across across these examples. And right now we have around close to 50 examples cutting across the public policy and consumption domain. And the first one is what we call side effect neglect. Uh, because you're hedgehogging in your efforts, what ends up happening is you end up concentrating on one of those signals, either the go signal or the stop signal, and you device all your marketing or public policy strategies to improve that signal. 
But unbeknownst to most of these managers, what ends up happening is one of those marketing strategies ends up having an important side effect on the other signal. So in the case of uh, uh, Ron Johnson, for example, this is the go signal is the signal that begets him success normally, and that's what he tried to do over here. But unbeknownst to him, and, and in order to do that, to be consistent with the improvements of the market square concept that he was trying to launch, he took away the nine ending sale signs. Remember, he did not take the discounts away. All he did was take away how the discounts were presented. But as a result of that, he took away what we would refer to in the literature as proverbial sale signs. And overnight, by taking away those sale signs, what he did was essentially amplified the stop signal. While we might tell ourselves 9.99 is not any different from $10, it just feels different. And there's a rich literature, some of which I can show you in a little bit of time, which would have predicted effects almost exactly to the digits that he experienced in terms of those 25% uh, drop in sales. Um, but he essentially ignored that. He, he was concentrating so much on the, on the go signal that he failed to look at the potential side effects of his marketing strategy on the other signal. Let's now look at another example where this side effect neglect, so essentially the neglect of the other signal, was essentially flipped. Someone who was looking very, very carefully at the stop signal failed to look at the go signal. Uh, this example comes from India, where the Tata company launched a car at the $2,000 price point called Tata Nano. And the motivation behind launching that car was quite simple. This is a quote from the day of the launch. Uh, this is Ratan Tata, the CEO, talking about today's story started some years ago when I observed families riding on two wheelers, the father driving a scooter, his young kid standing in front of him, his wife sitting behind him holding a baby, and I asked myself whether one could conceive a safe, affordable, all-weather form of transport for such a family. And if you think this is an exaggeration, I can assure you it's not. Here's one picture to convince you. We do this in India all the time. Uh, remember, there are four riders and there's only one helmet. Um, here's another picture. And sometimes in the spirit of uh, the egalitarian social democracy we have, we just choose to go helmetless. Uh, everyone is equally in danger. Uh, and I have ridden in these situations countless times when I was a little kid. So I can assure you that this court, which is up there, is 100% too. Now, why wouldn't these people buy a car? The big reason for most of these people to not buy a car, and incidentally, the next cheapest car that is available is the one in this picture over here, also made by Tata. Uh, most of these two-wheelers range from somewhere around $700 to around $2,000, depending on the kind of two-wheelers you're looking for. But the cheapest car available in the market at that time started at around $4,000. So this was a big price jump from 700 to 2,000 to 4,000. That was a big jump for most of these two-wheeler drivers. They would not be able to afford it. And time and again, if you interviewed them, this is the reason that would pop up. We simply can't afford it. So what Tata really wanted to do was lower the stop signal by creating a $2,000 car that makes the jump that much easier. So it's much easier to jump from $700 to $2,000 or uh, than to something that is exactly the double of that at the $4,000 level. Uh, the other thing that I do want to reassure you is that when they were creating the $2,000 car, it is not 
it, it is not a toy car. It's not a car that will collapse when you decide to give the fifth person a lift in your car. Uh, it, it is a solid car, well-tested, time and again. These are some pictures where, uh, before launching it, what they've done is put it in... in um, uh, some, some of these pictures come from the uh, engineering school at uh, Cornell University where they just left it out there for people to try out, literally speaking, to kick the tires and, and trust the car, if you will. Uh, and so the car was launched after giving people all these reassurances about how it meets all the current safety records, despite being at a uh, be, despite being at a two thousand dollar price point. And then they launched the car. The car, as most of you know, was simply a big, big flop. And the question is, what exactly happened over there? It, there, if you asked all these people driving these two wheelers, price was really their main concern. So if you lowered the stop signal from $4,000 to $2,000, this car should have worked. But what was it that went wrong? And here again, I think, and, and by now this is something uh, very public, including Ratan Tata, who has talked about this. It is essentially, again, another question or another instance of side effect neglect. Ratan Tata concentrated so much on lowering the stop signal that he forgot the side effect that some of his marketing actions might have on the go signal. And in his case, the side effect was very simple. It's essentially this phrase up here, the world's cheapest car. In India, for a two-wheeler rider, when you're upgrading to the domain of four-wheelers, it's a big social step up. It's a very important occasion when you send out social signals about your upward mobility. By calling it the world's cheapest car, you are completely killing that signal overnight. Uh, and, and I'm sure you've heard of this, but when someone in a neighborhood in India buys a new car, and especially if it's their first car, people literally come out to greet the car as well as the owner to congratulate them. Um, people start running with the car while you drive into your driveway. Um, people peer from their windows, either with jealousy or with admiration. Uh, and sometimes you get a priest to bless the car. Um, and at that point of time, if you're calling your car the world's cheapest car, that is surely not going to work. Uh, it is going to inadvertently kill the go signal in a pretty big way. And ironically, what happened uh, was that this car found its, uh, its salvation not at the bottom of the pyramid, which it was originally intended for, but the units that it did sell was at the top of the pyramid. It's all the Silicon, India, Silicon Valley, Bangalore billionaires who actually ended up buying it. And they bought it primarily as cars for the teenage daughters who are going to college or for the domestic help to go and do groceries. Because for them, they already had a Lexus or a Merc or something else standing in their driveway. So sending out social signals was not at all important. For them, ironically, the stop signal, lowering the stop signal really mattered. And that's where they ended up selling, um, selling the product. Um, this is just to tell you, people do worship uh, new cars when they come in. This is a Honda V8 engine being worshipped with a garland and a lot of gods being invoked in this scenario. Uh, also wanted to point out that this was not a primary demand scenario um, or problem. So at a time when the Indian four-door passenger car market was selling upwards of 200,000 units per month, Tata Nano at best sold around 9,000 units, and the average sales was around 500 units per month. Um, a couple of uh, other things that we wanted to point out. 
Thinking in a hedgehogging manner also leads to another class of errors. So one class of errors is quite simple. You concentrate too much on the go signal and you do everything that is consistent with the go signal, but you forget the side effect on the stop signal. Or the other way around, you concentrate a lot on the stop signal and you forget the side effects on the go signal. But other class of errors, some of which we'll simply not go into the details, is essentially a version of what we refer to as signal sensitivity neglect. You acknowledge both signals, but the problem is you chase the wrong signal and throw the marketing efforts and money after the less sensitive signal, and that can often lead you to trouble. Uh, we assume that the market looks like this, where the two curves, the go signal and the stop signal, are equally steep or equally flat, if you will. But in many cases, the market could be either like the panel on your left or the panel on your right, where in one market, if you went after the go signal, it would draw better dividends. In the other market, if you went after the stop signal, that would draw better dividends. But sometimes managers end up, for example, chasing, trying to lower the stop signal in, in this market where it would be futile or would be at least less responsive than if they went after the go signal. And one example in, in this case, in terms of neglecting the sensitivity, signal sensitivity effect, uh, is the Crazen's example that I talked about. Now, the height of that 100-calorie pack frenzy when Crazen's did not succeed, the reason should be pretty clear. The reason why cookies are succeeding is because cookies is a category where people have already maxed out on the go signal. You cannot put, for example, any more chocolate chip into that cookies. Otherwise, it would be chocolate, not cookies. And so the only thing you can do is essentially lower people's sense of guilt or any other way to lower the stop signal, and, and that would lead to better dividends. But if you think about craisins, which are essentially nothing but dried cranberries, they're very much like raisins. I don't think we lay awake at night worrying about become obese or fat from having raisins or craisins. Uh, if anything, the problem with craisins is that it may not actually have a very strong go signal. Many of us already think it's healthy. Some might find it too tart, maybe not that tasty. So improving the go signals for this category might have been better. And this is one example where managers were essentially chasing the less sensitive signal and, and doing so wastefully. Uh, let me go on to the next two classes of mistakes, and, and, and then I'll wrap up. The second class of mistake is... is um, seems to be in this category, besides the hedgehog in managers, when managers say that they don't want to do research. And the classic and very, very plausible scenario for that is this quote, where, which comes from Steve Jobs' biography. Um, and this is what Steve Jobs had to say. People don't know what they want until you show it to them. That's why I never rely on market research. Our task is to read things that are not yet on the page. Now, in general, whenever there, there are words like never, never, ever, ever, red flag should go up. Um, I think there's plenty of research that is out there what, which can inform your decision. Uh, this is just purely an overstatement. And as an example, for each of the cases that we talk about in the book, we, one of our frustrations is that if someone only had read the papers, they would have been able to predict this scenario very, very easily. And I just wanted to illustrate one of them. And this was essentially Johnson's dilemma. So Johnson essentially wanted to change the sales signs. He wanted to take away the sales signs. So proverbially speaking, what he wanted to do was change 9.99 into a round number, either $9 or maybe $10, and make it simple and straightforward. Now, what is the effect of taking away the sales signs? 
There is a huge and pretty big literature on it. And here's what the literature has to say. Uh, this comes from uh, a study done by Duncan Semester and uh, Duncan Semester's from MIT and Eric Anderson from Northwestern, who looked at a store which was used to nine-ending prices. So, for example, these this is one of the 17 different studies that they have done. This is the price of a dress which was being sold at $39, so essentially a nine-ending proverbial sale sign price. So, what they did was a little experiment where people were sent out catalogs which had randomly three different prices. One was the original price, which is sort of the baseline level, $39. In another case, they added $5 to it and made it $44. So in other words, they took away the nine ending price. In the other case, they reduced $5 and made it a $34 dress. And the results sort of speak for themselves. When you take away the proverbial nine ending price, $39, demand falls dramatically from 66 dresses that were sold to 46. And if you do some quick math, you will see that this drop, 66 to 46, is roughly 29 or 30 percent, which is exactly the drop in sales that Johnson experienced. There was a difference, of course. The company wiped out $2 billion in market capitalization and lost 500 million or at least half a billion dollars in terms of sales. But this experiment, or looking at these studies, and across the 17 studies they have done, the average drop in price, average drop in sales when you change the nine ending price ranges from 21 to 31, which is exactly midpoint of the average that he managed to achieve in his experiment uh, with, with, um, with JCPenney. So I don't believe when, when, when you say research can't tell us anything, it, you can't ask consumers how you will react to a 100 calorie pack but there are intelligent ways of testing it and figuring out how they will react to it. Um, but another class of mistakes that we definitely came across was essentially this anti-research manager kind of uh, uh, approach to doing research. Uh, the final kind, and this is the one that uh, I want to talk about more in a public policy context, is the assumption that most consumers are Vulcans. And Vulcans, as I mentioned earlier, um, I'm probably giving away my nerdy sci-fi preferences over here. Um, Vulcans are essentially people who process information in an emotionless manner. They look at uh, the utility gained from an action or a particular product, what is lost in terms of price. They do a quick calculus of utility maximization, and they either buy the product or they don't, or they engage in that action or they don't. Now, there are several things that are wrong, I, we think that are wrong with this, which the go and stop signal paradigm avoids. But in the interest of time, what I want to do is just pick up on one thing which we think is, is critically wrong with this utility maximization paradigm, which the go and stop signal allows us to sidestep. And that is the fungibility assumption. So in this model, the classic economist model, the assumption is that there's an utility gain from the product, and you subtract from that the disability of paying a price for owning the product or engaging in that particular action. If you want people to actually buy the product or increase the purchase decision, if you will, there are two equivalent routes to doing that. You can either increase the utility associated with the action or the product, or you can simply decrease the disutility associated with the price of engaging in that action. And either one of those should lead to a corresponding jump in utility maximization and people's propensity to engage in those actions. 
Here are a couple of things that we wanted to point out, especially in, in the public policy domain, where this doesn't quite work out. And one of the things that we found is that it makes a lot of sense to separate things out in terms of the go signals and the stop signals and try at least your best to match your intervention or your consumer innovation, if you will, to the kind of go or stop signal that is creating the problem in the first place. So here are some examples that I want to briefly mention. Generally speaking, one popular public policy tool or intervention is to essentially introduce monetary incentives to get us to behave better, whether it is we want people to recycle their products, not to litter the parks, et cetera, you, or to, pay pe uh, to get people to pay taxes on time, you pay monetary incentives. Uh, but there are several cases, and this one famous case in Sweden, where people were given a, a slight amount of money to donate their blood, and it completely backfired. The rationale behind that was quite simple. People who wanted to give blood but did not were interviewed, and many of them indicated it's a hassle. I have to waste time, I have to stand in a queue, you know, I have to tolerate the pinprick, I don't want to go through that. So, well, what about if I pay you some money uh, for the hassle cost of transportation, you know, let's calculate the average wage rate and try to compensate you for taking two hours away from the office, etc. And that completely backfired. So not only did paying people around $7 for their time not help, it actually hurt. For certain groups of uh, consumers or certain groups of potential donors, their donation rate actually decreased compared to the control group. So it actually backfired. Here's another example which relates to monetary fines, which are often done to prevent us from engaging in socially undesirable behaviors, whether it is littering or smoking, etc. Um, and this was the case in, in Tel Aviv, uh, Israel, where to deter parents from picking their kids up late, what they started doing was levy a small fine and I think it was for $4 for every 15, 20 minutes extra that, uh, that parents ran over. And again, surprisingly, these fines not only did not have an effect, they actually went the other way around. Late pickups by parents actually increased. Um, th this is another instance where putting up a monetary fine, which normally succeeds in a host of other domains, did not quite work out. And finally, again, um, you can also think of non-monetary incentives. So, for example, making things convenient for people to engage in. Um, and in this in particular was uh, essentially allowing people the convenience of online voting, uh, which was tried out in various cantonments in Switzerland, uh, also backfired. So, instead of, so again, people were interviewed, why don't you go out and vote? The big question was, well, it's inconvenience, there's a hassle, I have to go through the trudge through the snow, mud, and, 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 and slush. Um, well, they said, well, let's make it convenient for you. If Amazon can allow you to shop from home, let me allow you to vote from home. And again, not only did this not have an effect, it had a negative effect. People actually voted less in the cantonments where they made it easy for people to vote from home. So it kind of backfired. And to us, if you think about it in terms of the go signals and the stop signals, um, it makes much more sense. So if you think about why people give blood, the go signals for donating blood are quite obvious. Uh, it's, it's essentially a stamp of social valor. You're doing your civic duty, and you wear this as a badge of honor. However, by, getting, by, by giving people some money, you're completely sabotaging that signal. Um, you cannot tell 
people, you cannot boast. I gave blood and I saved a life for $5 as a side note. That, that just doesn't work. Uh, so you're completely sabotaging. Uh, so it's another instance of a side effect neglect where concentrating on or, or assuming that this, the disutility and the utility functions are completely, uh, completely connected and completely fungible can lead to wrong results. Whereas if you use the go and stop signal framework, it makes much more sense. Uh, the same thing with monetary fines for daycare pickups. Uh, a lot of the reasons why we pick up our kids on time, or at least try to, is some sort of a social contract. We feel bad about the daycare staff, perhaps. We also feel bad and guilty. Now, suddenly, uh, charging people $4 to do that transforms it from a guilt-related activity to a market transaction. And in fact, one of the things they found is what many of the parents do is they kind of round up. So if they're charging $4 for every 15 minutes that you're late, and let's say you're running five minutes late, parents say, well, let me just run the clock and hit it at 15 minutes and, and get the maximum utility out of being late and being charged. The same thing with voting. Um, we might crib about the, the inconvenience of voting, but in the end, uh, and you can Google this up, if you Google, for example, India Inc., um, it, it, you will find pictures of people all over posing with uh, their forefinger. And, and in India, because biometrics are not very well developed, after you cast a vote, your, your, they put an indelible sta stain on your finger to basically not allow you to vote again. And you'll find people taking selfies with, of course, the selfie stick um, and posting pictures of themselves online, boasting about the fact that they voted. So people vote because voting is something you wear as a badge of honor, as something you're doing for civic duty. Now, if you're voting in the privacy of your home, in your man cave, there is no scope for you to actually send out that social signal. And, and by allowing people to do that, yes, you've made it com convenient, but the side effect of that action is that you've completely killed the go signal associated with the act of voting as well. So um, let me quickly wrap up. Um, what is the book all about? I think what we were motivated was by some of these examples that we discussed. Uh, if we look across the consumer uh, innovation domain, as well as a lot of public policy interventions, what we found is this hit or miss pattern. People would be skeptical about innovation, then it would be a massive success, people would jump onto the bandwagon until the next failure, and then everyone deserts that bandwagon. We think a potential solution uh, or, or potential, three potential reasons for why these hit or miss patterns exist is because of these three distinct mindsets that managers tend to adopt. Either they assume that most consumers think in Vulcan terms, or they are hedgehogging in their own decision making, or they are fashionably anti-research, uh, depending on the flavor of the time. And we think that Thinking about any action, whether it is purchasing cookies, stores, going to a store, buying a car, giving blood, or um, even something like voting, if you characterize that action or that decision in terms of its go signals and stop signals, and in particular if you make sure to avoid any kind of side effect neglect that we pointed out earlier or signal sensitivity neglect, then you have much better chances of making sure that you don't have this hit or miss pattern um, that, that, that we talked about earlier. 
Um, one other thing that we really wanted to talk about, and this is something that the book talks about at length, but I will not because I'm afraid of putting everyone to sleep if I do that. Um, but in the end, what we are really exhorting people to do is essentially move to this sort of predict, test, learn paradigm of market research. Um, the quote that you saw from Steve Jobs earlier, which basically says, I don't believe in market research, is warranted in some sense. And, and it's mainly because a lot of people have been doing exploratory research, for example, doing focus groups, and directly implementing it into their marketing strategy or public policy decisions. And that is an absolute error. Um, you could not have, for example, asked a consumer, how much should I charge you for this 100-calorie pack? Even if a consumer agreed that the 100-calorie pack is extremely convenient and it you know, outsources my portion control, um, because in the end, you, know, you could have taken a large calorie pack, used a Ziploc bag and a pair of scissors to insource your portion control uh, desires. But people don't do that. And, and even if someone agrees to that, they would say, well, I agree that the 100-calorie pack is great for me, but I'll pay you a 20% premium. I don't think anyone would have said, yes, we will definitely pay you a 300% premium. So if you ask the consumer how much would you pay for it, and then you found that you got a wrong answer, and then you blame market research for it, that's like blaming Tylenol for not curing your angina. Uh, exploratory research by any standard market research book is not meant to be directly followed up by implementation. Rather, what we are exhorting people to do is to begin with some sort of a prediction. It doesn't matter uh, what your prior, past experience is. If you believe that customer experience really improves sales, okay, begin with that prediction. And you can use exploratory research to be an, a form of input that goes into your prediction. But that prediction needs to be tested. And by test, I mean a randomized controlled trial or a classic A-B experiment, uh, which is often referred to in, in the business world nowadays, but essentially a randomized controlled trial where you test out um, whether, your, um, whether your hypothesis is true or not. So for example, it always amazes me why the fair and square strategy had to be a nationwide launch. Why could it not be a small test in Ithaca, for example, uh, where no one would know that it's even going on. <laughs> but essentially, well, you do a randomized control trial. If it succeeds, you implement it. If it doesn't, you go back and look at the data, learn a little bit more from it, uh, and go back to this iterative predict, test, learn uh, uh, sort of research model. Where does the go and stop signal come in? The go and stop signal framework is essentially something that improves the quality of your predictions dramatically. Without a strong theoretical framework, you can go into this loop of predict, test, learn, predict, test, learn until you go bald of old age. But if you want to arrive at the answer relatively quickly and earlier, um, and if you lean on well-established theoretical frameworks like the ghosts and stop signals, uh, and as I mentioned earlier, we are simply standing on the shoulders of giants, it dramatically improves the ability of your model to make sure that these kind of hidden mispatterns do not happen. And it also helps you avoid those hidden mispatterns. Um, so that's ultimately the big picture for the book. And let me stop right here. Um, and, and, and take some questions. As I mentioned earlier, this is 
Uh, we're still testing out lots of elements of this model and looking at different areas as well where it may or may not apply. So any questions, clarifications, uh, suggestions, or absolute and outright disagreements are also welcome. First of all, I would like to thank you for leaving me. Well, yeah. uh, I would like to thank you for this uh, insightful lecture. Thank you very much. And now we can uh, open the floor to any questions that you may want to ask uh, Professor Chakravarti. If, before asking the questions, if you can tell us your name and affiliation, if you have an affiliation, and waiting for the uh, steward that have these um, microphones that can get to you, that would be great. Yeah, there is one question over there. Thank you. And I know all these people have to leave not because they don't like us, but because they're supposed to leave. Huh? <laughs> I was told before. <laughs> Thank you very much. Hi there, sorry. Really good lecture. Um, how do you think limited edition, like short time period for sales effect is sort of, how do you think that fits in with this or theoretical? So uh, if you're talking about... Can you tell us your name, please? Isa, sorry. Okay. Um, so I, I think it, when it comes to things which are on limited edition, it probably primarily increases the go signal. So um, assuming everything else is constant, the price level, the discount level, etc., if you suddenly throw in an announcement which says only two days left or just you know two per person, no more, or something like that, anything that signals scarcity, uh, I think rather than hitting the stop signal, what it probably transforms is the go signal. Suddenly the object becomes more desirable. Um, so I think that's where it would primarily pay a role. Yeah. Thank you. Hi, thanks for the lecture. My name is Lamade and I have a simple question relating to the cheap card that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So basically what I'm trying to understand is for most people in India, I understand that they want the luxury of having a car. Mm -hmm. But the fact that they're already on scooters, mm -hmm. that's more dangerous, and it's not luxurious either. So wouldn't the fact that a car offers more safety and for their family members be a strong enough go signal to convince them to move from the scooters to the nano car? I don't know what the price difference is, but this is just what I imagine. Yeah, so, um, so, so that's a... I think that's a very important question uh, to think about. So as the first quote that I put up from Ratan Tata reflects, it is a real problem. The scooter is dangerous. You're whipping in and out of traffic uh, with your family in tow, and it could be really dangerous. So he really wanted to solve that problem by providing a safe, all-weather form of transport. But unfortunately, people don't think rationally. So I don't think providing the car was a mistake. Providing the car was exactly the right thing to do. Pricing it at $2,000 was also the right thing to do. The only big mistake was calling it the world's cheapest car. Now, maybe, I don't know, in 50 years from now, people might stop worshipping their cars. That's a different issue. But at the current moment, it was not... It was, I mean, the evidence was there amply. I mean, the things that I talked about, how you bring in a priest to bless your car how it's a social signal of your upward mobility, et cetera. There's been reams and reams of research report um, written on it. So while it was the right thing to do, it was positioned in a very bad manner, and that was the problem. Um, and the, perhaps the only other thing I can think of is that 
one could argue that maybe $2,000 was not cheap enough. Maybe you should have dropped the price even more and, and made the stop signal even lower. That's a possibility. Um, but I think at first blush, the $2,000 price was actually right. Given that these two wheelers cost around $700 to $2,000, that was just about the right price point. It was just in that phrasing, the world's cheapest car. Uh, in fact, there was a conference in, in uh, I think hosted by Harvard or MIT. It was in Boston where Ratan Tata basically said, um, he just threw up his arms and said, I don't know about this. This is the marketing department's fault, not mine. But basically it was all in, in the framing of, um, of that phrase, the world's cheapest car. Yeah. Uh, Toby Chambers at Goldsmiths. Uh, just interested in kind of um, really the price signal mechanisms are more based on moral sentiments rather than actually the um, kind of neoclassical kind of like the cheapest. Um, so I think let me just go back one or two slides. This is probably not the right slide to go back to, given... Uh, but I think uh, this should uh, point out what I'm trying to say. So I think uh, one of the things that I do want to point out is that when we think about... When, I'm, when we're advocating moving away from the classical utility-disutility model and look at it in terms of go and stop signals... We really do want to point out that it's not just the concrete pain of payment in terms of price. There are all these less concrete things in terms of signaling, even self-signaling, etc., which seems to matter a lot. And in pricing in, in particular, that's one of the things that we find repeatedly, that price is not just the disutility you have to engage in in order to own a product or a service or engage in blood donations, etc. Uh, it, it can be very, very intricately linked to the signals that you send yourself uh, in terms of self-signaling or to others in terms of the product that you're buying. And for managers, it's, I think, very important to figure that out, whether... How do people think about price? Is it purely a disutility that you have to pay for owning the product, or does it have these other interconnected um, sort of connections? And typically, our main finding is that uh, it is linked to feelings related to self-signaling and feelings related to uh, social signaling. And, and there are potentially many other moral judgments that we could also examine, but we're just beginning to look at it. There was another question. The, yeah, the gentleman with the jean shirt. Hi, uh, my name's Greg. Interestingly, I don't anymore, but I used to work for Tata, so it was good to hear. <laughs> um, so my question, I think, is probably a continuation of that. Um, is, is the go-and-stop single model framework that you have, is this meant to kind of replace the classic you max utilization maximization concept in economics, or is this uh, something that goes alongside it, or is it an evolution, or how do, how do you see it? So, uh, in in most 
uh, most of these examples, I mean, I'd always say don't throw away the baby with the bathwater. So I, 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 I w- still am an economist by training before I started doing my PhD. So, of course, the utility maximization model works. But the moment you hit an exception, the chances are that it is because of one of these things. Um, so either they are sort of doing the fungibility mistake where they're saying lowering the disutility is the same thing as increasing the utility. Um, but repeatedly what we find is that instead of just looking at things in terms of utility and disutility, it is much better to look at things in terms of um, things that make you go towards the product or the action in question or things that make you stay away from that action. And also further deciphering uh, or breaking down those go and stop signals in terms of whether they are personal benefit go and stop signals, so essentially whether they are personal monetary motives, whether they are social or whether they are um, sort of extrinsically motivated, whether they are go signals which are more socially oriented. And the same thing with the stop signals. Are these stop signals purely personal monetary in nature? or are they more social in nature? So in essence, I would say once the simplistic transactions are out of the way, I would suggest this, is, uh, this has much better explanatory power. Maybe, um, yes. Hi, my name is Jung. Uh, I'm not a marketing at all. I just want to know, how do you actually construct the stop and, and go curve that you show there? I mean, the thing is, like, obviously, you want to, like, concentrate on the curve that is steepest, mm-hmm. so that raises the sales, that sort of thing. But how do you go about constructing a curve, for example, uh, I don't know, a, a, a Rolls Royce or a normal house or any product? Um, so you're asking about actual concrete measurement. Uh, yes. So the, so the measurement is, of course, uh, a little bit tricky, but... Um, just pulling up this slide. Um, but in, in, in most of the cases, this is a question of a two-step market research process. Uh, the first part is you have to figure out where do these go and stop signals come from. And there's no other way other than to just brainstorm. You brainstorm, here's the product, or here's blood donations. What is it that makes you gravitate towards that action or that product? Make a list of it. And then brainstorm and figure out what are all the stop signals. Now, these are products of brainstorming and exploratory research. Obviously, they may or may not be true. So the next step is actually doing a series of experiments where you present a product with or without, for example, if you believe the chocolate chip cookies are really part of the go signal, change the number of chocolate chip cookies or the amount of chocolate chip cookies that are there, get different groups of people to test it, and then see what is, where do they rate your product in terms of this scale? So if you're undecided, between undecided and will definitely buy, you can imagine gradations. So once you change the product from version A to version B, where you've increased or decreased the chocolate chip cookies, you should see that someone's rating sort of going, um, I don't know if this would be appropriate. So let's say you change the amount of chocolate chip cookies uh, this was, let's say, the original product, and you find that this is what the ratings are like, so somewhere along the curve. Now you've actually increased the chocolate chip cookies, you should find ratings going up, which would then mean that essentially the go signal has strengthened. Um, 
Likewise, let's say you've lowered the price and, and you find that originally the stop signal was somewhere over here. Uh, pardon my drawing. But then once you lowered the price, it's at discount. You can have two bags for $5. Then again, this stop signal seemed to have shifted from the right to the left. And the go signal would shift from the left to the right. So essentially, it's good old market research, but it would be a two-step process, one where you brainstorm, but also realize the fact that in brainstorming, many of the things are sort of contaminated by you know, social desirability biases, but test it out in good old-fashioned experiments and see how people's self-reports change as a function of creating version A versus version B, which changes what you think is the stop signal. And obviously, if this doesn't change, it means that that is probably not the stop signal and you're chasing the wrong stop signal. So it's, it's an iterative process, but the first step would be list all the things that you think are relevant to Rolls-Royce. Um, just to give you an example, I mean, it seems fairly widely applicable. So we've tried it on something as simple as medical devices to, of course, things like cookies, lots of public policy domain-related uh, activities. Um, to make sure I'm not hedgehogian, uh, I'm sure this will fall apart with, on a particular example. But so far, it seems to have pretty wide applicability. Yeah, yeah the gentleman with the yellowish shirt. Hi, I'm Gaius. I work for a political party that's having a bit of trouble winning elections at the moment. I'm <laughs> <laughs> um, trying to apply the go-stop analysis to elections when we have this uh, competitive system where both sides in, engage in a lot of what I think of as anti-marketing. Does, does that analysis need to be tweaked at all or altered in that case? Firstly. Secondly, it's terribly interesting, your... Um, comparison about uh, the, the, the Swiss apparent mistake about what would encourage more people to vote, and, and then looking at, at the way people in India and, and other countries take great pride in voting. However, there is this tragic decline of voting in the wealthier, I suppose, more stably democratic, in a sense, countries. And that's layered. It's, it's declining much more amongst the poor. It's declining much more among, amongst the young and so on. And uh, is, is there anything that go-stop-signal analysis can tell, help us find out about that? And thirdly, I've just got to ask, should they have sold craisins in 99-calorie packets? <laughs> well, well, the last one is the easiest to answer, so um, probably, uh, I'm not sure. Um, my, perhaps, you know, quantity works the same way as prices do, and that might uh, be a good idea. Uh, with r relation to the idea of participation elections, what motivated the Swiss example that I shared with you was precisely what you mentioned, which is essentially turnout was poor. And for example, in the US, I think um, only in a presidential election do the numbers go above 50%. Most of the times, elections are decided at 20% or even less turnout, which, which is a pretty bad state of things. Now, I would say, well, one simple way to increase voting turnout is to essentially amp up the go signal. But the problem, and that's essentially uh, the, the second layered question that you asked, 
is that I think the go signals really vary from one group of the population to another. So the reason why, let's say, poor uh, income or, or the lower SES groups may not be voting is not because they're not attracted to elections. It might be a problem of the stop signal, which is essentially they might think it doesn't make a difference, where disempowerment is essentially the key stop signal. So there, I would say, the public policy body should focus on somehow removing the whole idea of the fact that they are not, they're disempowered to do anything or bring about change, um, which, interestingly, in India, I think is exactly the opposite. For, for the poor men out there, they line up to vote precisely because that's the only stick they have to beat up the guy uh, with, who's building a 100-story apartment in the middle of Mumbai. Uh, he will not cast his vote for him. That, that's the only thing they have. So, so they actually are pretty high in terms of empowerment or making a difference. Um, whereas the lower turnout on, let's say, the middle-income group or the higher-income group, the, the stop signal there might be completely different. Uh, that might be disengagement, in which case perhaps the solution is get them to tweet about it or anything that increases engagement. Um, so I'm reluctant to sort of uh, prescribe one solution or the other, but the question that you alluded to is something that we really talk about a lot in one of our public policy-related chapters. And in particular, we were looking at, for example, these uh, CCTs or conditional cash transfers, which were meant to solve problems like uh, getting kids to go to school and getting uh, parents to have their kids take medication on time, etc. And our problem with cash as a panacea to all these things was that the stop signals really differ, or the go signals might differ. So are parents not, for example, vaccinating their kids because they don't see the go signal, meaning they simply don't understand the benefits of a vaccination, in which case the solution is education. Tell them, here's what will happen. Uh, your kids will not be sick. They'll live healthy and f uh, fulfilling lives. Or is it because of a stop signal? That is, yes, they understand all these benefits, but they don't have time because the kids need to be on the farm tilling the land. In which case, a conditional cash transfer should actually work because it gives them some money, which frees the kids up from tilling the land and frees them up to go and, and um, uh, attend the clinic. Um, so I, I think it's a very interesting question, and I definitely think looking at it through the lens of go and stop signals would make a big difference. Yeah, there was a question. This. Yeah, hi. Uh, my name's uh, Stuart Nucky. I'm, I'm here with my my daughter, actually. <laughs> um, what 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 actually com, uh, comes across to me? You've got obviously a number of go signals, number of stop uh, signals, and I suppose each will have some. Will have like a waiting. They'll have you know waiting. So obviously in, in the car, in the car example, um, you've got this thing about upward mobility then versus you know safety, mm -hmm. and each you know have got these different weight weightings. And and how how do you actually get that net effect? You know, the net of, of all of all the sig you know, the, the, the net sort of weighting of all the si of the go signals and all the stop. You know how how do you then come come to a conclusion then you know whether to to, to go or stop? I suppose you know, you know go ahead or not. Yeah, so that's a question that we, uh, I think, grapple with uh, quite a bit. And the one thing um, I can tell you that we seem to 
sort of um, the safe bet is essentially um, this T part of the model, which is essentially testing. So in other words, um, for example, in that 100-calorie pack example that, that I talked about in the beginning, um, as well as the JCPenney scenario, um, so Manoj and I essentially did a couple of things to sort of replicate those effects. So we did some experiments where we would directly ask people, if we took away the sale sign, how would you feel? Or if this was presented in a 100-calorie pack, imagine you don't have to sort of um, you know, create your own portion control. How do you feel? How much would you be able to pay for it, et cetera? Now, in many of these cases, asking consumers work in the sense that the consumer does tell you what will happen in the marketplace. So, for example, in our experiments, at least, these or studies, at least, these people essentially said, I would be annoyed if you took away the sale signs. And they said, here's how much less I would buy from the store. Uh, or they said, yeah, this 100-calorie pack seems like a nice idea, and I'll pay you some premium. But when you ask consumers directly, they grossly underestimate or overestimate their reactions. It, no one came even remotely close to the 300% premium that people are actually paying. Uh, likewise, no one, if you tally up everyone's yeses and nos, we wouldn't have predicted a, a 21 to 31% decline in sales at all. So for that, to actually get a sense of the net effect, uh, you have to do an experiment where you present people with a regular pack of, calorie, uh, of, of cookies, see how much they intend to buy it. Another group of people, the 100-calorie pack, see what their intentions to purchase look like and make deductions from that. And when we do that, when we don't directly ask people, we simply give one people one version of the product uh, or we present the blood donation scenario in one version versus the other, we find the magnitude almost exactly replicated. Um, so in, in, in the short answer to your question is you can get some intuition of it by asking people, but if you want to get the magnitude and sometimes even the direction right, then usually you have to do an experiment. Um, you can't directly ask people. We have time for one more question, yes? Hello, my name is Turhan. Um, on one of your slides, um, there was a point that uh, stop and go signals are equally important. <laughs> I'm thinking in terms of um, product differentiation or brand differentiation. Um, would you say if, um, go signals or go area if, um, is more, if, um, more productive or more promising for differentiation on price premium purposes? Or if, um, I'm struggling to see how we stop you can uh, differentiate and um, charge premium prices. And second question was, um, have you tried the model on services, on service marketing? Um, and is it... Could you repeat the second question again? The service, services area? Because so far we have talked about um, products. Um, yeah. In terms of services and service, service marketing or mm -hmm. services positioning, um, does the model work? Um, just a question. Sure. Uh, great question. So for the first uh, uh, part of your question, which was essentially from price premium perspective, does it, uh, is it always the case that improvements on go signals pay off rather than stop signals? Uh, if I actually count the examples, which is around somewhere between 40 and 50 in the book, uh, the, answer, the short answer is yes. Uh, it loads up more heavily in favor of improving the go signal um, rather than the stop signal. 
But the big exceptions are, are uh, basically dictated by the market. There are many markets where the markets are much more sensitive to any changes in the stop signal, and that can sometimes allow you to charge a premium. Uh, an example of that in an extremely price competitive category, at least in the US, is um, car dealerships, for example. So Saturn, for example, made a living out of the fact that it's one single price, there's, there's no haggling, there's no bargaining, there's no going back and forth with the uh, shop floor person. And that actually allowed them to command a premium over many other similarly priced competitors. Um, so there are many examples where actually bringing about improvements in the stop signal, a sort of clearing up the clutter, making it easy to deal with, um, not directly price per se, but things related to service, for example, actually leads to better improvements, mainly because I think there are too many people already fighting on the go signal space already. Uh, with relating to the services question, the answer is yes. So we were actually very tentative um, to even actually write this book, uh, partly because, you know, again, as I mentioned earlier, we did not, the last thing we want to be is an example from our own book, which is we did not want to be hedgehogs who say that this one idea solves the whole world. But increasingly, the evidence is that it applies across the board. So the first service instance was essentially JCPenney, which was about store atmospherics and uh, other. There's a product, but there's also a big service component to it. Uh, but we've also found it in pure, pure service domains as well, including financial services where we are talking about literally investing in different kinds of mutual funds and how price there can actually act as a go signal rather than a stop signal. Um, so the short answer to your question is yes, in the services area too, we've found uh, a lot of uh, scope or applicability. Okay, so um, I guess uh, it's 8 o'clock, so we can go to eat and drink uh, and celebrate this book. Uh, but I just want to thank uh, all of you for being here, for being such an attentive and, and participative audience with a lot of insightful questions. And of course, Professor Chagavarti to spend this uh, time to share his ideas with us. And copies of the book are on sale outside of the theater if you're interested. And that's it. Thank you very much for this interesting lecture.